It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Donald Trump has told China that by raising American tariffs, he can make foreign companies flee the Chinese economy, hurting China very badly. China state media retorts, if you want to fight, we will fight you to the end. Such bluster makes this trade war sound like a game of nerves, with each side waiting for the other to back down. Actually, this moment is more dangerous than that. Something long-lasting has changed in the relationship between the world's two largest economies. Hello and welcome to Money Talks. I'm David Rennie, The Economist's Beijing bureau chief. For the past four decades, the pursuit of profit has been a pillar of stability in relations between China and America. General Motors sells more cars in China than it does in America. Apple doesn't just assemble iPhones in China, it sells them there, in the millions. The tech giant makes 20% of its revenues there. China, too, benefits from a healthy relationship with America. A third of a million Chinese students are currently enrolled at American colleges and schools. Those strong bonds used to help both countries manage their deep ideological differences. But mistrust is now eroding those old guardrails. The consensus in Washington has changed very fast. In just a couple of years, American leaders have gone from talking about market access and business deals to calling China the greatest all-round threat America has ever faced. So I just announced it will increase tariffs on China. And we won't back down until China stops cheating our workers and stealing our jobs. And that's what's going to happen. Some talk of a new Cold War. Actually, this new competition makes the old Cold War look simple. America and the Soviet Union hardly traded at all. In the late 1980s, two-way U.S.-Soviet trade flows were $2 billion a year. Today, U.S. and China trade flows are $2 billion a day. We don't have to do business with them. We don't have to do business. We can make the product right here if we have to, like we used to. Remember? Like we used to. Trade has gone from being a safe place to becoming a field of competition. High technology is important here. There are just so many more products that require a lifetime commitment of trust between customers and providers, whether that's self-driving cars or wireless networks. America's deep suspicion of Huawei, a Chinese telecoms giant, is just a taste of that future. For their part, China's elite sees America as a sore loser trying to keep China down. Mutual distrust is edging into contempt. On this week's Money Talks, we'll explore what this tense relationship means for these two superpowers 
and the world. A focus on mutual self-interest has sometimes involved queasy compromises for Americans trying to hold on to the values of their founding fathers. After troops and tanks committed mass murder in Tiananmen Square in June 1989, President George H.W. Bush was quick to condemn the massacre. The demonstrators in Tiananmen Square were advocating basic human rights, including the freedom of expression, freedom of the press, freedom of association. These are goals we support around the world. These are freedoms that are enshrined in both the U.S. Constitution and the Chinese Constitution. But less than three weeks later, he assured then-leader Deng Xiaoping in a secret letter they shouldn't let tragic recent events undermine a vital relationship. In today's Washington, D.C., policymakers worry that the threat from China is real and that defending against it matters more than corporate profits. That's affecting even areas of harmony between the two countries. For the past four years, Chinese orchestras on concert tours of America have stopped to offer free concerts in Muscatine, Iowa. Iowa might not be the first place you would think of as central to US-China relations, but the small city of Muscatine has a soft spot in Chinese President Xi Jinping's heart. The young Mr. Xi first visited Muscatine in 1985 while on an agricultural research trip. The up-and-coming communist official met local Iowans. They took him to farms and feed mills, to a hog roast and a boat cruise on the Mississippi River. Mr. Xi remembers that trip fondly, and Chinese officials have showered Iowa with gifts since he became leader. When Mr. Xi returned in 2012, he met the Iowans who had hosted him decades earlier, and he told them, for me, you are America. My brother and I were in college, which is yeah. why Sarah Landy, the organizer, knew my mom. Yeah. And she's like, hey, you have two empty bedrooms. Can yeah. you take two people? Yeah. And my mom was like, sure, you know, why not? So. Gary Dvorak was at college when China's future ruler borrowed his bedroom, still had his Star Wars figures on the shelves. So this is a picture in front of the house in 1985. And so my mom and dad, my sister, was still in the house. She was 14, and that's Xi Jinping. This was the, the Muscatine Journal headline, front page news, Chinese visitors, you know, in 1985. And that's Xi Jinping, and that's the rest of the delegation and some of the, uh, the Iowa people that went around with him. Today, Mr. Dvorak is a business consultant in Beijing. He's often asked to meet visiting delegations of Iowan farmers and entrepreneurs. There is a special relationship between Iowa and China because of the Xi Jinping connection. And Chinese go to Iowa all the time. Constantly there's delegations going over there. And they go to my house. My house is a museum now, right? They go to my house. Literally a museum. Yeah, yeah, they, they turn it into a museum. The Sino-US Friendship House. It was bought by Chung Li Jun, a Chinese businessman, and it displays photographs of Mr. Xi's stay. Mr. Chung owns several properties in Iowa. He's raising his children there, and he believes that ordinary Americans welcome Chinese investment. But he worries that Chinese businesses in the U.S. feel a lot of invisible pressure 
from America's government. He thinks that officials see a spy scandal in every attempt to buy a business that uses technology. Mr Chung also frets that life in a Midwestern small town is just a bit too comfortable. He grumbles that Muscatine folk will not work hard to make their hometown into a destination for Chinese tourists. Mr Chung isn't the only one who's grown somewhat pessimistic over the relationship. Gary Dvorak again. Everything that the Americans accuse the Chinese of happens, right? So the, the, the technology transfer, intellectual property theft, there's a lot of a lot, even more basic just day-to-day challenges. And I think the Americans have every right to say, we don't want you stealing all of our developments, our technology, all that. We just want a level playing field. You know, that's what the Americans aren't looking for an advantage, per se. They're looking for a level playing field. But Mr. Dvorak also sees why China feels it has to protect its markets from stronger American competitors. They're doing exactly what's right for them. We are doing exactly what's right for us. We're not going to let this country just steal our intellectual property, you know, steal everything. So what do you do? Muscatine has benefited from its relationship with China. High school and community college students have enjoyed free study tours of China, paid for by a Chinese company. The benefits flow both ways. An hour's drive from Muscatine, the University of Iowa saw Chinese student enrollments rise fivefold between 2007 and 2015. Off the campus, bubble tea outlets and noodle bars cater to thousands of Chinese students. Those kind of mutual ties make some wonder, how can anyone talk about a new Cold War between America and China when links have grown so deep and so broad? But even in Iowa, there are signs that the two countries are pulling apart. The number of Chinese students at the University of Iowa, for example, peaked in 2015 and has since fallen about 39%. Visas are getting harder to obtain for Chinese students. It's harder to stay on and work after you graduate. China's influence on campuses is a frequent topic in congressional hearings. The Federal Bureau of Investigation has accused China of sending graduate students and researchers to steal American innovation and called US colleges naive about that threat. From Congress has come much closer scrutiny of Confucius Institutes, Chinese-funded outposts based in American universities that are intended to promote Chinese language and culture. Put simply, America is having a crisis of confidence about openness. That means openness to students and to Chinese soft power projects. But it also extends to America's trust in open markets and free trade. In part, that's because China has grown so big. In part, it's also because China has become much more assertive about its ambitions. The best example is China's plan to create world-beating companies in 10 high-tech sectors, from robotics to artificial intelligence. That plan is known as Made in China 2025, and from the Trump administration to Congress, it's called a Chinese roadmap to overtake America and dominate the 21st century. So I'm writing a long piece for The Economist about US-China relations. I've read your Made in China 2025 report, and you've clearly been speaking a lot. There are now five people that have done so. (laughs) Senator Marco Rubio, who unsuccessfully sought the Republican nomination for president in 2016, has become one of Washington's most prominent China hawks. He's used his platform as a senior senator from Florida to sound the alarm about everything from Chinese industrial policies to fears of Chinese infiltration 
on college campuses. In 2018, he urged universities in Florida to consider closing Confucius Institutes on their campuses. Mr Rubio is the son of Cuban immigrants, and I asked him in April whether he worries that efforts to tighten security might leave all Chinese students feeling under suspicion. You know, that is one that I, that I struggle with and we have to balance. On the one hand, we cannot ignore the fact that the Chinese government has used student visas as a way to bring people to the United States for purposes of accessing technology. You know, when people in the West think of spies, they think of a James Bond movie. Mm -hmm. This is a very different sort of espionage in which acquiring a key research position at a university allows a Chinese national to transfer information back to China. And they may be doing it for nationalistic reasons, they may be doing it for financial reasons, they may be doing it under duress. Whatever it may be, it's happening. We can't ignore it. The flip side is I don't want to trigger xenophobia in which every Chinese student in America is presumed to be a spy until proven otherwise. So it will be a struggle for us to figure out a way to solve that problem. Senator Rubio is unusually hawkish when he describes the China threat that he sees. This China issue is not a four-year, two-year or one-year issue. It's not even a singular issue. It is so broad, so comprehensive. And, and, and so critical to the definition, to the very outline of what the century is going to be about, that future presidents are going to be dealing with this as well. Senator Rubio notes that China is not just America's largest economic competitor, it's also his country's most daunting military and ideological rival. One of the oddities of the current moment is that while Donald Trump is taking more aggressive actions towards China than previous presidents, Mr Trump is not really a China hawk like Senator Rubio. Mr. Rubio is a fellow Republican, but he carefully signals that his president is not the only voice that counts. This is not going to end with a trade deal. This is not going to end with the Trump administration. These challenges that we face with China are going to be around for the next 50 or 60 years, and we need to ensure that it becomes a broad enough consensus in American politics so that no matter what party's in charge or who's elected president, We'll, we will continue down this road of addressing these things. A core argument to Donald Trump's is that all previous American presidents were too weak on China, too willing to put their faith in multilateral solutions. Mr Trump pulled America out of a big free trade deal, uniting a dozen countries in Asia and the Americas, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. I think the, uh, the decision to pull out of TPP was one of the greatest strategic blunders in recent American history. It created a significant void in the region that China has been all too ready and willing to fill. The Obama administration had seen TPP as a way to strengthen the rules-based order and to hedge against China, which wasn't invited to join TPP. My name is Michael Froman. I am vice chairman and president of Strategic Growth of MasterCard and former U.S. Trade Representative of the United States. Mr. Froman does not deny that tariffs have brought new urgency to talks about trade relations between China and America. This administration is focused more on using tariffs, and it has certainly gotten the attention of the, uh, of the Chinese leadership. It's brought, I think, China to uh, the table. Mr. Froman knows from experience how difficult it is to make gains in negotiations with China. Every trade representative wishes their successor the best in going further than they were able to go. And each of us have approached it in a somewhat different way. During the Obama administration, it was a combination of high-level engagement, including from uh, the president to the president of China, focusing on very specific uh, issues in the economic 
uh, a, a relationship, taking China to the WTO when we found them to be in violation of their WTO commitments. We brought 16 cases against China. We won every case that was brought uh, to conclusion. Uh, organizing international consortia of other countries to put pressure on China, uh, for example, around excess capacity in the steel sector and the aluminum sector, and then holding out the carrot of negotiations with them in the bilateral investment treaty to help drive reform within China. We didn't violate our international obligations or use certain tools outside the disciplines of the rules-based system to say we're just going to impose tariffs and, and uh, see what the effects are. I don't seek to contain China. I don't think that should be U.S. policy. China is going to be a rich, important, and powerful country. And it should be. It's one of the world's largest and it has tremendous capacity. The issue for me is not the containing of China or holding China back or holding China down. The issue is a proper balance of power between two very important nations. That, that is the objective, and I believe that the direction of our current policy and our current relationships between China and the U.S. is leading down the path of an imbalance in the relationship that will inevitably lead to very dangerous conflict. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Donald Trump is not the first American president to promise a tougher line on China, but he is the first to seemingly welcome trade wars. In March 2018, he tweeted, When a country is losing many billions of dollars on trade with virtually every country it does business with, trade wars are good and easy to win. Mr. Trump's approach to trade wars can make America's markets sound like a valuable piece of real estate which foreigners should pay more to access. Sometimes, a single industry's fate sums up an era. Bicycles are such a case study. In the 1970s, American factories produced over 15 million bicycles a year. Uh, if you walk with me in my hometown, nobody knows me, but uh, walk with me at a bike show in, in Taipei or in Shanghai, I'm, I'm a celebrity. It's kind of funny. Arnold Kamler is chairman and chief executive of Kent International, a family firm based in New Jersey, which sells about 3 million bicycles a year to Walmart, Target and other shops. 1978, my father... Kent used to make its bikes in New Jersey. Then cheap bikes started arriving from China in the late 1980s, at prices that made no sense. It got to the point by 1990, our cost of our raw materials, of just the parts uh, and the steel, was more than we could buy a complete bicycle from from China. Kent International closed its New Jersey plant in 1991, and other firms followed. Today, over 95% of bicycles sold in America are imported, overwhelmingly from China. On the face of it, that's the kind of story about Chinese cheating and American passivity that Mr. Trump used to win office. But real life is not as tidy as a campaign speech. One way to appreciate that 
is to travel to the eastern Chinese city of Kunshan, near Shanghai, to the sprawling factory where most Kent bicycles are made. We are the biggest vendor for bicycles for Walmart. So actually it was Walmart to, uh, asking us if is it possible to open a factory in America. The Kunshan plant belongs to Shanghai General Sports, run by Gu Lei, an amiable 43-year-old. His father, Gu Yali, was a government official when he was asked to turn around an ailing state-owned bicycle plant in the late 1980s. For economic nationalists, the success of that factory in Kunshan is a story about how Chinese cunning, backed by government subsidies, stole jobs from America. But Mr. Gu, who was making those bikes in Kunshan at the moment that the American industry fell apart, he doesn't credit Chinese cleverness. The bikes that China used to make were shoddy products, he says, could never have been exported. Instead, he describes Japanese and Taiwanese bike makers coming into Kunshan and bringing world-class manufacturing with them. Mr. Gu and his son do not see America as an opponent, but as a partner in globalization. In fact, a few years ago, they bought 49% of Kent bicycles. That means that when the Trump administration slapped 10% tariffs on bicycles made in Kunshan last September, it hurt Kent too, raising the company's costs by $20 million a year. It even hurt a plant that Kent owns in South Carolina, assembling bike parts made in Kunshan. And that has cost American jobs. Bicycles are just one of the Chinese products that now face 25% tariffs. Mr. Trump is threatening to extend 25% tariffs to all Chinese imports if a deal cannot be worked out in the next few weeks. China has announced its own retaliation in the form of tariffs that will take effect in June if there is no deal. Both sides are leaving room to climb down, but aggressive rhetoric is making it harder for either government to concede much ground. In the meantime, those China tariffs on bicycles are not bringing jobs back to America. Mr. Gur and his father have bought land in Cambodia, and they're moving a big chunk of production there instead. The current Trump administration style is to be brash and angry. There's lots of ways of solving this trade war, but it doesn't make the kind of headlines that the Trump administration wants. Tariffs are taxes. Samir Keynes is The Economist's US economics editor. There'll be two main impacts. One, if you were considering trading one of these products before, now you're thinking again. I would expect to see exports from China drop. The second thing that we would expect to happen is that for the, for the trade that does carry on happening between the two countries, the importers are going to end up paying more. So far, what we've seen is is not that in response to tariffs, the Chinese drop their prices in order to get into the American market. So far, we've seen them keep their prices on hold and American importers suck up the higher costs. If uh, President Trump and President Xi deal with these tariffs and postpone them or lower them, what are the long-term implications of this degree of confrontation between the two countries? One of the effects of this is going to be to encourage businesses who had located their factories in China to serve the American market to think twice about doing that. Uh, I'd expect to see some movement away from China, perhaps to other low-cost countries, perhaps in Asia. And, And so effectively, that means a sort of decoupling between the two countries. I think there are real limits to, to the extent to which that full decoupling can happen. 
that would have to be a very, very long run thing just because the two countries are so interlinked. But I suspect that will that will be one of the, the sort of trends that we see as a result of all of this conflict. Samaya, thank you. Thanks for having me. If China and America are going to manage this new great power contest, America is going to have to overcome a crisis of confidence. Part of that is the shock at the sight of cutting-edge products and innovation coming out of an autocratic state like China. Until recently, politicians in the democratic world said that free societies have a special edge when it comes to creativity and inventing the products of the future. One of the great myths that we need to work to dispel is the old myth that China doesn't know how to innovate. All they know how to do is copy. That's just not true anymore, which is fine. They have a right to be innovators. Building defensive barriers will not be enough. Senator Rubio again. Although a lot of the innovation that they're now doing is built on a foundation of what they stole, but it places the onus on us to become more innovative, to invest more in innovation and basic research, not just in maximizing short-term profits at the expense of the long-term health of our country. The, the key thing, in my view of it, is that the prevalent view within policy circles in China and some of the think tanks that publish is that somehow U.S. efforts are all designed to hold China down to keep China from being rich and powerful. And there may be people in American politics who view it that way. I don't. And right now, it may not be held by everybody, but the people in charge of the Chinese Communist Party and therefore of its government hold the view that they are engaged in a zero-sum competition and that the only way for them to become more influential is at the expense of the United States and the Western economic order that was established after the Second World War. And uh, we need to recognize it for what it is. And We have basically spent the bulk of our time over the last couple of years just trying to create that consensus and conditioning policymakers to that reality. Because without that in place, we can't take the steps that we need to take. The rise of China was always going to be a bumpy moment for America. America's most daunting strategic rival, its greatest ideological competitor, its largest economic challenger and its biggest trade partner for goods are all one and the same country. For a long time, optimists told comforting stories about how economic self-interest in both countries would prevent those contradictions from causing lethal rifts. The optimists failed to foresee how openness could start to feel like vulnerability. Technology makes that much more acute. The emergence of omnipresent technologies crucial to modern life has blurred distinctions between commerce and national security. These are the two most powerful countries in the world and their basic worldviews about how to run an economy are starkly divergent. America believes that China has risen at its expense and that it's time to stop helping China do that. That is a problem too big for business interests to solve. This current trade war is shaking global markets, but even if this round of skirmishing is resolved, a much larger fight is just getting started. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. You can read and hear more of my special report on a new kind of Cold War in the upcoming edition. Subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm David Rennie. In Beijing, this is The Economist. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. 
Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.